Welcome. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you. And we are very, very grateful for all of you, uh, all of you coming to our house, but especially those who are first-time guests. Thanks for making us your church home for an hour today. Um, we also want to recognize our veterans. If you are serving in the military presently or have served, please stand. Bless you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You may be seated. Your sacrifice makes all that we have possible. We're very, very grateful for your service. And may God keep you and yours safe. Uh, last week, we had a, um, an election, and I am grateful that, that all of you voted. <laughs> now, those of you who, who fall outside of my gratefulness, <laughs> I want to encourage you to to express yourself in the, the ability that we have as a privilege to elect our officials. I realize you may not have a favorite candidate. You may not even think there is a favorable candidate. There may be nobody you like. Vote for anybody. <laughs> Just vote. We have the privilege as citizens of America to do something that, that many countries do not. They can't do this in China. One billion people can't do this in China. They don't have a democracy. It's a dictatorship. Somewhat benevolent, but still anti-Christ in terms of the church. We have a privilege. Secondly, with these things that we call privileges in America, remember, they come as a result of somebody praying, somebody setting up our system whereby people who have the, have the gospel on the inside, can express themselves in the electoral process. And so you've, you've got the opportunity to help. Now, even if you just write somebody in, you say, my vote won't matter because they won't be elected. Well, when, when have we ever decided that doing the right thing was dependent on the results? Yeah. When? When does Christianity ever look like that? In fact, when we do the right thing, most of the time, the results are bad. They never, it's hardly ever, does it ever work in our favor. So doing the right thing has nothing to do with how it turns out. It's an act of worship. So I'm begging you, do the right thing because you have been given the, the privilege and responsibility to help put some folks in office that might help us live in peace. Vote your biblical conscience. Not your political affiliation. Your biblical conscience. Now, pastor, why didn't you say this last week? I don't know. <laughs> I had a lot of other stuff to say last week. I can't say everything all the time. I don't know. But I'm saying it this week because we got another election next year. Do right, do right, do right, do right, do right. All right, turn over to Jude.
We're going to look at Jude, verses 2 through 4. And um, I, I intentionally, I have a preaching rhythm throughout a year. And there's some things that I need to concentrate on every 365. So stewardship, our mission, our values, the vision of the congregation, Easter sermons, some uh, Palm Sunday sermons, uh, Mother's Day parenting sermons, Father's Day, different kinds of parenting sermons. Our, our Christmas series is coming up here in a few weeks. And so there are about 20 Sundays where it's all taken up. And then I'm gone some. And so there are about 10 to 15 Sundays where somebody else is preaching. And um, there are other Sundays where I feel like I need to at least relegate it to whatever God might be saying to us in this moment. So we need to go to this pasture and eat. But I always try to take one period during the year to communicate a book to you. Now, generally, it's a short book because if I do Jeremiah, it would take the entire year. (laughs) But I try to give you a synopsis on a particular book so that you can feel better about reading that book. The last thing I want to do is be the the one upon whom you are dependent to get your revelation. I don't want to do that. Uh, now, if I can be the icing to your cake, great, but make your cake. Get with God and know how to read your Bible. And the reason I stay in a passage the way I preach is not topically, meaning I'm not talking about repentance and then choosing every passage I can find in the Bible on repentance to tell you how important it is. I'm staying in a passage of Scripture and speaking in a, in a way that is expository in its fashion parsing out this passage and letting you understand what the writer was originally trying to say to the readers. Why? Not just because I think it's a good way to go, though I think it is a really good way to go in terms of communication, but I want you to be able to have the confidence to open up your Bible and read it and know what it's saying in the context in which it was written. And doing an entire book helps you best do that. Now, Jude has some interesting things we're going to get into in the next couple of weeks, and you're going to say, what in the world is that? And so we'll be able to talk about why he wrote what he wrote and what it meant to the readers who were reading it at that time. Because the Bible was written to people, but not you. It was written for you. It was written to them. Same meaning for you. But if you don't know what was written to the people to whom it was written and why in the context, you won't get the for for you. So we got to go back and find out what was he trying to say to them because that doesn't mean much to me at all. Why in the world is this communicated when I don't even know what, what 666 means? But obviously in the book of Revelation, the people to whom John was writing knew. They could figure it out. And so we have to go back and find out why did he use that kind of code. So the Bible was written to people in that day, but it was written for our benefit. So we're going to learn today and over the next few weeks what the original intent of the writer was. Jude chapter 2, excuse me, Jude verse 2 through 4. May mercy and peace and love be uh, multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you would contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long ago marked out for condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny 
our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Lord, help us as we study. Three things I'd like to talk to you about. First of all, a strong leaning was diverted. Secondly, a stronger need was there to appeal. And thirdly, why? Because safety was at risk. Again, the writer Jude is commended as somebody that needs to be listened to. And there were a lot of letters written by spiritual men during the day. Remember, there was no text. There was no phone. There was no email. There wasn't even mail. You had couriers that would take something from one person to another. There was no legitimate system whereby mail could be delivered. You had to have a servant that delivered it. And so people would write letters and send them off to different places. And they realized that this church thing was growing. And maybe they could gain some influence by sending something that sounded spiritual. And though the letters may be credible in that that they had good theology, they weren't included in what we call the canon of Scripture because they did not fit the criteria. And if if you were going to have a letter that was written and included in what they called canon, then there had to be certain criteria. One, you had to live and walk in the first century with these men. You had to be an eyewitness of who Jesus was. Now, even though Paul did not walk with Jesus, he was there when Jesus was ministering. And we know that he saw him on the road. He said, why are you persecuting me? And so Paul is commended and fits within the criterion. Jude happened to be the brother of Jesus. Now, he doesn't say that, but he says he's the brother of James. Now, there are a bunch of different James in the New Testament. Just like there are a bunch of different Marys. James was a common name. James was a Greek version of Jacob. And so everybody wanted to identify just like you do. The name is important when you name your baby and you want them to go back and hearken to a moment where somebody that God used amazingly can maybe help define the character of your child. And so Jacob was used all the time. James was Jacob. The James that we find that was a disciple of Christ, who was a brother of John, he died in Acts chapter 12. He was the first martyr among the apostles. There was another martyr in Acts chapter 7, but he wasn't among the apostles. That man's name was Stephen. James, that wrote the book of James, was a brother of Jesus. Uh, And when when you say brother, there are sensitivities that rise because everybody says, Mary had another child? How come we don't know anything about that? Well, we're not quite sure whether she had another child. And upon this point, I don't want anybody to think that it, it... It needs to be one that must be debated. I don't care. I don't care if Mary had another child or not. If she did, yay! I mean, it would be really strange if she had Jesus and then her womb was closed. I don't think she'd be happy for the rest of her days, though she may be fulfilled in that she had the Son of Almighty God. I mean, that's hard to be disappointed about. But the rest of her life, to never let her bear another child? Or to make her husband Joseph happy? Because he didn't have part in who Jesus was. that, that, that That wouldn't make Mary very happy. But we have no account that she actually had another child. Nothing in Scripture says so. And the fact that the word Adelphi, which is the word for brother in Greek, is also the word used for cousin, meaning they didn't have a word for cousin. So if your dad had a brother and that brother had a son, you and that that cousin were actually described and and defined as brothers. There was no different word to use your relationship together. 
nor was there a different word to describe half-brother. So could it be that Mary and Joseph had another son or sons that would not be full-blood brothers with Jesus, but half-brothers? They would be the full relationship through Mary, but only half through Joseph. We don't know. And we should not care. But there's a whole sector of the church that really cares. Some of you know what I'm talking about. And, and I don't care that they care. <laughs> I really don't. I'm not fighting about that. But the interesting thing about this point is that Jude doesn't even describe himself as a brother of Jesus. Because he's not trying to name drop. I mean, that would surely bring him credibility. Ha! <laughs> I'm the brother of Jesus. Are you? (laughs) No, he describes himself as the brother of James. Kind of one degree of separation. Why? Because he doesn't want his ministry to be defined by simply saying, you know, my mama was a deacon. My uncle was a pastor. Isn't that what most people do when you ask them about their spiritual life? They try to give credibility to their own being by talking about everybody else. Jude isn't doing that. He just says, my brother was James. And James wrote James, and he was also the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, Probably the lead pastor, though. Peter was the leader. James was probably the lead pastor. And he says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Multiplied. Boy, don't we need that. I mean, in in the epistles, you're not going to find a whole lot of wasted breath. No syllables that didn't need to be spoken. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in a way that multiplies to you. Not in addition, multiplies. I need mercy multiplied to me. I know how messed up I am. I know my tendencies, and if I am not guarded by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God daily, I will do the worst. Now, for 35 years, 36 years, I've had the grace of God attend my way, and I've grown, and I haven't done the worst. And so I don't have any reason to believe that that will not be my portion tomorrow. But I know this, that I cannot depend upon Brett in order to be what I need to be so that I don't do what I shouldn't do and wake up tomorrow thinking I am my own salvation. My strength has gotten me here. I can't do that. I've got to depend on my God in mercy multiplied as much as I did when I first got saved. I need it. I need peace multiplied. Gosh, I've got so many storms. So many storms. Every place I look, there's swirling. There's swirling here. I'm not talking about little thunder showers. I'm talking about hurricanes. Swirling, swirling, swirling. All over my life. And none created by me. By you. (laughs) Storms. All my friends. Storms. And they're asking me to get on the bow of the boat like Jesus and go, shh. Be still. I need peace multiplied to me. I need love multiplied. Because there are some people who, you know, when you are, when you're the, the, in charge, um, when, you, when you are the guy who everybody looks to, to be responsible, um, and, 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 and I'm not, I, I give the facade that I'm in charge, but I'm not in charge. I'm not in charge of my house. My wife is in charge of my house. I'm not in charge here. My staff does everything. I, I, I'm not, I don't have that much power. I have a lot of influence. But I intentionally defer to everybody else because they're amazing human beings in what they do. 
I, you, you all are so blessed to have the staff you have. I looked at them last week in our staff meeting. I said, I could not think of a better group to serve with on the planet. Amazing human beings. Extraordinarily competent. So I'm grateful. But there are folks out there who will not look at me as somebody who stewards his congregation toward its purpose, but the one responsible for all the things that go wrong. And so blame me, and it comes with the job, not complaining a bit. But it requires me to need love multiplied because they aren't loving me very much. <laughs> I need it multiplied. I don't just need normal love. I need agape. I, I, need, I need that unconditional love like God had toward me when I was messed up and going the wrong direction and he continued to reach out and love me and say kind things about me even though I wasn't kind and surely didn't deserve it. I need that kind of love too. I need love multiplied. Jude is not just saying a very spiritual hello. He is trying to impart things to people. And then he says, <clears throat> I, I had a desire to talk about our common salvation. That's why I started pinning this letter. And then I had to bring out my eraser because I got word. I, I, we don't know how, but I got word that there were issues in the church I needed to address. And as I began writing this, I thought, eh, no, no, no. But I want to. I want to. And he talks about he wanted to write about the common salvation. And the common salvation is not just a, a, a phrase that talks about uh, our our our. Ability to fellowship around common theology. But the main issue in the church during the first century was how in the world can Jews and Gentiles relate in the same house? Don't Gentiles have to be saved a different way? They don't have the same kind of privilege that we Jews have of being saved just by believing because they didn't have the law. And they don't have the dietary restrictions. They don't have the feasts. They don't have the holy days. Don't they need to come in at a different level because, you know, they're not us. They weren't God's chosen. They were kind of afterthoughts. And they need to respect our traditions if they're going to come in and be like us. So when you have your moment and you pray the prayer and people say, I want Jesus to be my Lord, raise your hand, the whole works. And, and after the service, what we need to do is take all those Gentile men to the back room. And uh, um, yeah, circumcise them. That's what the Jews thought needed to be done to all of us Gentiles. Now, I'm not mad at them. They were just trying to go by what they knew. But... But that would seriously make you ponder. <laughs> I mean, you still love Jesus and say yes, but I mean, it, it may, well, what we, we got to do? Where are we, what do you, hold, hold, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. And after you went down the road a little bit, you say, is there anesthesia? <laughs> I just want to know, is there anesthesia? Do you have a medical, a registered medical professional on site? I mean, th these were the things that needed to be addressed from the Jew and the Gentile perspective. And the Gentiles were saying, wait a minute. I, I thought this was all by, by faith. I thought it was all by grace. You mean I have to do this to be right with God? That doesn't make any sense. You mean I have to follow the dietary restrictions? I can't go to Famous Days anymore? <laughs> uh, wah, 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 wah. I, I can't. 
I can't go to McCormick and Schmick's and, and Red Lobster. I mean, I, I, they, order, they have fish, but no shrimp, no mussels. I mean, we live here on the, on the East Coast, y'all. Crabs are the thing. But I don't know why we like, I'm not from here. I'm from Kansas. I don't know what the infatuation is about a blue crab because you got to work really hard to get a little bit of meat. <laughs> I can't get it. I'm sorry. I mean, you got to work so hard to get a little, you got to eat like 50 of them just to get full. No, take, take me to a red lobster. Give me a lobster. I'll be fine with that. I, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to be critical. It's just something that came out. We have to follow the dietary restrictions? Are you kidding me? That's the only way we can be right? And what Jude says is this. He begins to echo what the church has has adopted as the primary way through which unity can be established. That the Gentiles need to do nothing more than express faith in Christ. Because you Jews, even though you followed the law to some degree, you didn't follow it all the way. And if you break one part of the law, it's as if you've broken all of the law. So though you think you are commended before God because of your keeping the law, you actually broke it. And when you broke it, you then now are guilty before him. Yet he saved you in spite of your guilt. So it's not on the basis of works. It's on the basis of grace even for you. So why do you want to put a yoke on them that they aren't able to keep because you weren't able to keep it? You know you weren't. So what do you think they're going to be able to do? So it's all on the basis of grace. It is a common salvation. And that's what Jude is referring to. And he says, I wanted to write about this because this really encourages you and it brings you up to a different level. But I couldn't. And I can't tell you how many times I have wanted to write about making you or, 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 or speak about making you happy on a Sunday. Something that would just encourage you to a different level and, and bring joy. And you walk out and you think, woo! I feel better about my life. But then something happened in our society where I had to address some things. And I didn't want to, but it demanded that I addressed some things. Or maybe we were moving in a direction as a church that required us to be different when we got to our destination than we are right now. Or maybe there was something that we needed to address corporately as a people about what it looks like for us to be ethnically diverse but unified at a very deep level. So that our community could could know what it looks like, what God intended for it to look like. Because the church is the only place where you're going to find authentic unity with diversity. Only place. Everybody else at best is tolerating one another once they get past all the things they like about each other. Because sooner or later, they're going to find the things they don't. Then what? We work through all that because we've got a tool belt full of forgiveness and patience and kindness and tolerance. and <sighs> This is what we do. So there are many times that I wanted to talk to you about things that would make you happy, but I felt compelled to do something other. So I know where James lives. I get it. And he said there are some issues we've got to address today. Issues. And it's important for us to feel what the writer was trying to convey, to get down in his soul and live in his world. When I read my Bible, I try to go on vacation there. When I, when I read about Samson, I am walking next to him. I've seen in my mind's eye, Gath. I've seen the places where he had great victories. 
I've seen those little foxes go throughout the harvest fields of the Philistines and burn everything up. No, I haven't been transported. I'm not weird. <laughs> There's no astral projection. None of that. That's, that's demonic. I don't know anybody who has said somehow that's legit. I fell out of my body and I just started floating around and I went to India. Strange and weird and demonic. Are you listening? Listen, if you get out of your body, you're going to heaven. Most of you. <laughs> oh. I didn't know how to say that. I'm sorry. I didn't know how to say it. But in my mind's eye, I transport myself in, in a very real way to the environment in which these people live because it helps me understand what they were talking about when they said what they said. And so I'm trying to live with Jude. You wanted to say something, but you couldn't. Thus, even though what you were going to say was really important, something trumped that, so this must be really important because the idea of a common salvation was the theme of the church in the first century. Paul wrote about it all the time, trying to get Jews and Gentiles to relate. And he says there's something more important than that. I want to know what's next. What made you divert your attention away from that? And he says... As I was talking about this, and this, this is beautiful because when an apostle, a man like him, and he's, he's an apostle, though he was not a part of the original 12, he still has apostolic authority. And when, when he says what he says, he can generally say it how he wants because he's got that kind of juice. I mean, he's all that. God decided to, to put his letter in his eternal book so that we can benefit. I, he doesn't do that with a thing I write. Not a thing. Not a thing. Though it may be entirely scriptural, it's not worthy of that. So this is a man here. He can say it however he wants, and yet he starts out by saying this, I appeal to you. You know, sometimes authority is best used without you telling anybody you got it. He could have brought the hammer. He could have said, you know, he, again, he could have said, I was the brother of Jesus, so now listen to me. He could have done, he could have said this any way he wanted and been right to do so, right. But he says, I appeal. I, I plead, I implore, I beg you, do this. Oh, authority is best used when it is used not as people think it needs to be. When people choose to manifest the humility and gentleness of Christ in the midst of their correction, their rebuke, their strong words, because it shows the humility that it's not what they are trying to say. All they are is the, they're just the mouthpiece. You're the emissary. He's the one who's in charge. I'm bringing you information, and I'm going to present it in such a way that you can best hear it. Don't stumble over me. I'm appealing to you. And what does he, does he appeal for? He says, I want you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. Now, this, this really needs some definition. Because some people believe that contending for the faith means that you are supposed to fight with people about doctrine. Some of the most uncivil and horrible discussions I have ever seen 
were about doctrine. People trying to defend truth in an ungodly way, fighting against the person, mad at the person for believing that. And, and, and though they are trying to hide behind their version of truth as they best know it in Scripture, the spirit in which they're coming is just nasty. And you sit there and say, guys, there's no point in this because even if you win, you lose. You're losing your brother, though you win the argument. And then what did you win? What's wrong with you? How do you love somebody when you disagree with them? How do you practically reach out to them and bring them in even though the issues about which you agree are really serious? How do you do that? How do you love somebody? Hear me. How do you love somebody who is a heretic, who is in such error that they believe the things that are in Scripture are wrong and they can live the way they want? How do you love somebody through that? Jesus was willing to be confused as being completely wrong methodologically because he would hang out with tax gatherers and sinners, which were the lowest of the low on the spiritual ladder of, of evaluation. And when the religious leaders came to him and said, you know you hang out with these people. We know it too. Therefore, that, that de delegitimizes your credibility. You don't have any in front of the people because you hang out with the wrong folks. He said, wait a minute now. If a person is sick, don't they need a doctor? Well, yeah. Well, that's me. And these people are sick. Now, a doctor needs to hang out with sick people to get the sick people well. He doesn't need to hang out with other doctors to talk about how their, their profession is so virtuous and how they believe the right way about the physical body. They need to hang out with people who are sick. That's the purpose of their training. So that's what I'm doing. And the beautiful thing is when Jesus hung out with the sick people, they got well. He didn't get sick. When you hang out with sick people, what happened to you? Do you help them get well? Or do you get their disease? Do you wind up doing what they do? God help you. God help you. It's important for us to learn how to deal with people with whom we don't agree. And to love them in the process, even if they don't agree with anything we have to say. And there are ways that the Bible prescribes to make that happen. Jude talks about appealing on this issue because he doesn't want to be overly strong in order to incite something in the people that would be not Christ-like in their response to those who are against the gospel. And he says we have to contend for the faith. Not contend with people, but contend for the faith. We don't fight with people. We fight for the faith. That doesn't mean that we're going to get in spiritual arguments with folk. What it does mean is when things are beginning to assault the sheep, we stand in front of it. When thoughts that are wrong, that are beginning to get in people's minds in order to take them away from Jesus, Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians. We don't battle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against rulers in high places, against spiritual forces of wickedness. And when we arrive with you, we are ready to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. He didn't say, I'm ready to fight anybody who doesn't agree with me. He says, I am, uh, I am assaulting the thoughts that are trying to take people's minds away from Jesus. And I'm going to stand in the way of, the, of the, that thought getting to them. My truth is going to defend them. 
That's the way we contend. And so when I see somebody who's been taken away by temptation, by the enemy, by a lie, I get in their face. I say, listen to me. God saved you from that, not to that. You need to come this direction. Victory is yours. I begin to fight against the thoughts, not against them. I can't believe you're doing that. Why don't you believe they would do that? They're a human being. Anybody can fall. Everybody is prone to doing the wrong thing. Stop saying, let your disbelief in somebody's poor action, don't let that be the lead. Especially you who are parents with these people that are in your house. I can't believe you did that. Why? <laughs> Why don't they came from you? <laughs> oh, now you're mad at me. They came from you. So why can't you believe they would do stupid? Because you, is there anybody in here who hadn't done stupid? It's amazing that they do anything right. So you don't assault them. You don't contend with them. You fight for them. Contend for the faith. So there are two ways we need to contend. One, with theology. So we need to fight with the right ideas in our brain. Use them as weapons and know how to do that. Breaking down the arguments that people have. Because, hear me, there are no new errors. They've all been discussed before. Wrong is not novel. People have been wrong a long time. And so you ought to be able to be somebody who has understood what wrong looks like in every generation, or at least some, maybe just yours, and be able to defend the faith on the basis of what that wrong is. Somebody I was talking to the other day <clears throat> uh, was, was an atheist. And I said, oh, okay. Well, why, why, why are you an atheist? He said, because I don't believe there's one way to get to God. I said, well, you just said that God exists. I said, but I'm not, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. <clears throat> you listen. You listen. Because people don't even know why they don't believe. They've heard something. And they, they accepted it as truth without really going through the process of figuring out what is it saying. So he said, I don't believe there's one way to get to God. Okay. And I knew, okay, at least you believe in God. Even though you say you're an atheist which means that you're mad about something that is taking you away from him. So now I know something. So then I say, okay, well, um, you, you don't believe there's one. Do you believe that there is, there's any truth that humanity needs to, uh, to, to which humanity, humanity needs to ascribe? He said, what do you mean? I said, well, is there any absolute truth out there that everybody has to adhere to? He said, no. Hmm. Are, you, are you absolutely sure? That there is no absolute truth. Yes. <laughs> Do you get me? I haven't offended him yet. I've just broken down everything he said. So I said, Do you know you just said there were no absolute truths by, by saying an absolute truth? And if you can make an absolute truth as flawed as you are, what qualifies you to do so? 
And because you know on the inside there must be an absolute truth to which everybody can ascribe, even if it's the, the fact that there aren't, are no absolute truths, then you are using the idea of who God is and what he has as a proof to your own willingness to believe he doesn't exist, but you're, you're stealing from him to make your point. You break down people's idea, and, and afterwards he was saying, I need to think about this more. <laughs> I said, good, and I'll be happy to sit down so that you can think best. I'm not trying to make you believe in God. I'm just trying to help you think right. And when we can get people to think right, we have contended well for the faith. Are you listening to me? Now, I could have said, I can't believe you don't believe in God. You offended the high and holy one. (laughs) And believe me, there are people who do that. And they contend with the person rather than the idea. And they lose both. Secondly, we need to contend for the faith, the active faith, that stuff that allows us a privilege of moving forward regularly. James said, if your faith does not work, it's dead. If it's not active, it's dead. You don't want to be one of those people that goes to heaven and nobody knew you were a Christian here. They couldn't tell. Oh, you're in glory. But gosh, did you make any difference here? You don't want to be one of those folks. You want to be one of the people that when you get to glory, God pushes a rewind button and, and you're sitting there looking and saying, I didn't, I shared the gospel. I don't even remember sharing the gospel with that guy. But he shared with somebody else who became a pastor and then they founded a church of 20,000 who sent missionaries out to, it all started with, oh, thank you, Jesus. You don't have to be the person that does everything that is worthy of being written about. You just have to be a good witness. You want to be that person. You don't want to be the person that arrives in heaven and he pushes the rewind button and you're sitting there thinking, what did I do for 80? I missed that opportunity and that one and that one. What did I do? I had such an opportunity to present myself to God as a useful worker and I didn't. You don't want, because there's no second chance once you get to glory. It's over. Lastly, and I've gone too long. Oh, talk too much. Don't stop, Brett, stop. <laughs> Safety is at risk because people have crept in, Creepers crept in among you and they are beginning to sow lies ideas about how we can we can do anything we want to do because the grace of God is available he forgives he's so merciful they've begun to look at the grace of God as a license to sin this is what James says I mean Jude says they, that's, that's what licentiousness is the ability to do what you want to do because you know you're going to be forgiven for it and again God has saved you from sin not to sin He wants you to come out of it. Now, the fact that we don't sin doesn't affect anything about our eternal destination. Because let's face it, we still blow it after we're saved. And the forgiveness of God is there for us to be cleansed. Everybody say amen to that. That's a good thing. But if you come to me and say, Pastor, can I blank and still get into heaven? Fill it in. My question is, why do you ask me that question? 
What's wrong with your heart? Why don't you ask me the question of how much can I do to make God happy? Tell me. Just, just, just let me know what I can do to bring a smile to the face of God every day so that when I put my head on the pillow, I can hear spiritually my father saying, well done today. What, why don't you ask me that question? Well, you know, I ain't a preacher or nothing. I'm not asking you to be. I'm just asking you to be a really good Christian. Changing, exchanging the grace of God for licentiousness, making something that is so wonderful as a privilege to not have to suffer for, the, for our misdeeds, the consequences of our misdeeds, and using that as a license to do what we want to do, that is error. It is wrong. And if that lodges in your brain as being somehow legitimate and begins to inform your life practice, you need to repent today. Repent today. And say, God, I'm sorry because I have not lived in line with the sacrifice you gave for me. You gave your life for me. I now give mine to you. Let's pray.